The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectators Book Club podcast. This week I'm very pleased to be joined by Susanna Moore, who's the American novelist probably best known for her erotic thriller In the Cut, but she's joined me this week as a memoirist, the author of a new book called Miss, well, in the UK we'd call it Miss Aluminium, I imagine Susanna calls it Miss Aluminum, which is an account of a sort of period in her life from her young womanhood to, I guess, her late 20s or early 30s, it's probably where it ends, isn't it, Susanna? Can you start by telling me a bit about, or the listeners at least, a bit about the sort of frame of the book, this chunk? Is it just a sequence of time or was there a kind of structuring principle that made you think that is why you're you're making this one section of your life part of the book? For years people had been telling me that I should write about the time that I spent in Los Angeles in Hollywood and I was always a bit resistant, and had had already written about some of that time in my first three novels, which were about um, growing up and which were very autobiographical. And I felt I had done it and didn't didn't really want to write about famous people of whom I with whom I had spent a lot of time, in part because of the, the work that I did, and then later the man that I married, I thought it was a little vulgar. I was very hesitant to do it. And of course, there has been some criticism. Of course, some, some people have said, oh, do you only write about famous people? And of course, the answer is no. And when I, so I, so I thought, okay, I will take those 10 years and write about them, but that's it. I don't want to go any farther. And, of course, my, my publisher has asked me if I would write a sequel, and I've said no. So when I, when I was writing it, I also was very loath to write about my childhood, which I felt I had also written about extensively, especially in the, in the first novel, which is, was about my mother's death. But when I was writing it, I realized that I, I had to include my childhood to, in order to explain some of the almost aberrant and incomprehensible decisions and choices that I made during those 10 years. I, I thought I, I can't leave out the past because otherwise I seem uh, you know, ridiculous, too neurotic, ignorant, and... Um, and too naive and too troubled. So it became then also a reflection on my childhood and adolescence leading into those 10 years in Hollywood. We, we, we should maybe explain for the listeners who aren't familiar with your childhood that you lost your mother pretty young, didn't you? Yes, she died mysteriously when I was 12 and she was 35. And that was a heart attack. But you suggest in the book that it might not have been, that you think she might have killed herself. Is that...? Well, for, for a very long time, um, and as a girl, as an adolescent, I was, 
I thought that she had committed suicide. And it was also the gossip in, in Honolulu, which was a small town then. And um, as I say in the book, a, a school friend even told me that people, were, people believed that my father had killed her, which, of course, was preposterous. But as I, as I grew up, I was more able and now am fully able to accept that I simply don't know how she died. My father, who was a doctor, believed that she died of a blood clot from arteriosclerosis. But, you know, if you say that to another doctor, they raise their eyebrows. It's very unusual for a woman of 35 to have arteriosclerosis and otherwise good health. So I don't know. Do you... I mean, you've said that in order that the reader can understand why you made the choices you did, you know, you need to go into your childhood and into your you know, the background that made you who you were. Do you feel in the process of writing this that you've understood yourself better? Yes, yes, I did. And it, and it was difficult at times. And, and I felt also a great deal of remorse. And I realized that I was assembling in my head a list of people to whom I wish to apologize. Men always, men. I don't think I ever behaved badly to a woman, but I then, of course, realized that they were all, most of them were dead. So I was able, since regret is a proclivity of mine, I was then able not only to have the regret, but to be able to regret that I, I couldn't apologize. Do you, I mean, do you see the book, at least the first part of the book, as an account of trauma? Yes, I, I think so. And, and yes, uh, it was traumatic for, for me and for my younger brothers and sisters. And, and in some ways, the five of us have never recovered fully. I mean, you have a very piercing bit in the, the book where one of your brothers says to you, you know, why did you leave us? Because the book begins with you blowing out of town. You have a kind of wicked stepmother figure and you're, you're gone. Oh, that, that is something that has come up often over the years. And, and, and remember, the, she died 50 years ago, 60 years ago. So it's a long time for something to, to keep, to, to remain a question. It's a heartbreaking question for me because I felt guilty and still feel great sadness that I left them. You know, they, I was the oldest. I had protected them. I was a buffer between my, my them and my stepmother, and I was I, I was the mother for them. I had replaced my mother, and I then disappeared. Although over the the next decades, I did bring whenever I could my my brother and my sister with me. So I I as you can see, I still feel. Guilty. I tried. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a book where you're quite, I mean, these emotions come through, but you're quite matter of fact in the way you describe what happened. I mean, was there a sort of, is that a natural style for you or was there a sort of conscious decision? I'm remembering actually the opening pages of In the Cut, you talk very extensively about style and what a style 
tells you and what an author's doing with style? I mean, did you think I need a particular way of telling this story? I think it is natural to me uh, when I when I and sometimes I I err too much on the side of a kind of uh, coolness. I remember when I turned in my last novel to Sonny Mehta, who had was my editor for thirty years. All he said to me was, "Too distant. Do it again." And of course, I did, and he was right. And I made it a little less. Uh, detached, but I think it is my style, and part of it is an aversion to sentimentality or even the appearance of wishing to evoke pity or sympathy. I mean, one thing I so did not want this book to be was about the triumph over adversity, which so many memoirs are, and some of them movingly. But I, yes, I think it is does come to me naturally. But I also, in, in when I was writing in the cut, I did a lot of research, uh, erotica and pornography, because I wanted to write about sex and I didn't know how to, and that did not come naturally to me. I was shy about that. And what I discovered was that the most effective, it seemed to me, eroticism was matter of fact that that the in theory, see me details how something smelled or tasted or felt. If you left those out, it somehow was more erotic, which was a surprise to me and, and, and a lesson. Well, the, I mean, the question of sex, I think, will kind of, you know, preoccupy readers of that book because, you know, they, they'll go, you describe yourself being a very sexually naive young woman being kind of prissy, not really understanding your own pleasure, not really, you know, at ease with, with men. And, you know, they go... Not, at, go, not at ease sexually, at ease no. otherwise. And, you know, they, you know, she's gone on to write one of the most famous erotic thrillers for the last 50 years, probably. You know, where does that come from? Where does, I mean, is this a... Was that a sort of reaction in some way? Did you go, I've got to got to get on top of this subject. <laughs> no, you know what it was? It was, I was, I was very startled as a girl, probably about 11, to discover that being a girl was not what I had imagined it, imagined it to be, that it was a lesser role, that it was much better to be a boy. And of course, this was the late 50s. And it it um, induced in me a kind of defiance that I, I, I fear lasted far too long and a rebelliousness. And when I had finished the three Hawaiian books, the first three, I realized that I was being described as a, as a woman who wrote for women and you know was a woman's writer. And I, this made me very defiant. And I thought, wait a minute, I, I, I'm not just that. And I really did, in a, in a kind of teenage way, think, I'll show them. I'm going to find a way. And so I thought, well, how, how can I do that? Well, most noir is written by men. Women don't usually write about I mean, erotica in, in, in a way that's successful. In all of my, and also, I intended in, in the cut that the detective be a woman, that that turned out not to be very practicable. But it really sprang, the, the, the book came really from rage and defiance and anger, 
which of course must have been very, very long in brewing. Yes, it's very, it is very energized by that rage. It's and, full of and anger, I mean, that book. I, I was interested to hear you saying this earlier, you know, I feel like I, you know, I have a lot to apologize to men for. And you know, this is a book in which you actually do encounter some really serious male violence. There's, you know, an episode that I think would be by any standards described as a rape that you underwent and sort of didn't do anything about at the time. And your your husband, when you said he was leaving him, there's a terrifying moment when he's he just absolutely, you know, practically breaks your jaw, I think. I mean, he does you know, knock you cold. There's a lot of male violence in this book treated in quite a sort of, you know, some ways quite a downbeat way. So I'm surprised to hear you saying you feel you need to apologise to men. It seems well, <laughs> the I, other way around. I, I, those two were not on the list. Those two men uh, were not among those whom I wish, to whom I wish to apologise. And it's not as if I would not have done the things that I did do as a you know, 25-year-old or a 30-year-old. But I, when I was writing it, I saw that I might have done them differently in a way that was less painful or harmful or unkind to, to them. I mean, when I read it, I, would, I, I never fully acknowledged to myself how kind Doug Netter had been to me. And I was 21 years old. And although we both were married, he really did save my life after I was so badly beaten. And I, I don't think I behaved well to him after that when I left him, I mean, which was inevitable. Of course I couldn't have stayed. We wouldn't have been together. But I might have done it more gracefully, more kindly. Now, the curiosity of the book is it's, you know, it's full of these famous names, you know, you've, you, you've, you're hanging out with the young Roman Polanski, you have an affair with Jack Nicholson, you're constantly reading scripts for Warren Beatty, you know, Joan Didion is all, you know, she's always there as Joan Dunn, but she's, she's around. And yet you've named the book after the very brief period of time you spent working as a model for an aluminium expo. What? Why did you choose Miss Miss Aluminium, Miss Aluminium? You know, I suppose, uh, you know, I also am a, a teacher. And one of the things that I tell my students is that metaphors often come to the writer as a surprise after they've been written. And that it's it's a little dangerous to conceive of a metaphor beforehand because it can become heavy-handed. and. There's, in fact, a metaphor in the book that I didn't realize until, you know, a week ago. But the title was chosen by Jonathan Galassi, who is my editor, who just, after reading the first draft, said, oh, well, of course, you have to call it. It didn't have a title, Miss Aluminum. And I was a little startled, a little hesitant. And then I saw that, of course, it is a metaphor. It's about, you know, the... First of all, what aluminum is not steel... Aluminum is also a, an alloy, and it, it represents the difference between who I was, really, and who I appeared to be. And the book is very much about that, the, the, the part that clothes play, for example. I was going to say it's a book that's deeply interested in clothes. 
you know, why? <laughs> First of all, I think clothes have gotten, you know, um, not have not received their full share of appreciation as a as a minor decorative art form. But I think it came from my mother who used clothes as a young woman to create an identity for herself and also to lure my father. They were very much from a different class and uh, her, she had very fine clothes because her mother had been a lady's maid and had been given these clothes. And so my father thought she was someone other than who she was. And for her, clothes were both, a, both protection and also a seduction. And I think I must have learned that very early from her. And then when I left home, I was sent these clothes. I had nothing. I was sent these very beautiful clothes by a woman who had taken an interest in me, clothes that she no longer wanted. And the clothes were very expensive, really for a much older woman. And because they were all that, that I had, and also because I knew they were beautiful, I fell into a disguise not unlike my mother's own disguise. There was, there is a moment of sort of terrible mortification where you turn up to a, a kind of ball in, I guess it must be the late 60s, the early 70s, and you've got this special dress that, is it your aunt has, has sewn it, it for you? It was in 1965, and my, my grandmother, who had been the lady's maid, was also a very uh, accomplished seamstress, and she was so excited when she heard. I had just arrived in Philadelphia, so I was 17. She was very excited because it was called the Bachelor's Ball, and it was for mainline young men. Mainline was the, the fancy neighborhood of Philadelphia. And uh, she, I n knew nothing about balls. I really hadn't even worn shoes. And she made a very formal, beautiful evening gown that she copied from Vogue and an evening coat. And I arrived so overdressed as to be not just outlandish, but preposterous. You know, all the girls were in sort of flowered summer dresses and their hair had not been done and they were not wearing high heels or stockings. I also had like elbow length gloves on. I mean, oh, that was a lesson. It was. For most of your early life, I mean, you, you worked as a, as a model for some of the time. You've, you know, obviously your looks did affect the way you went in the world. You know, you were understood and you are, were beautiful. Were you very aware of that? Did you, were you aware of that changing the way that people reacted to you and your, the doors had opened? Well, I think anyone who is attractive, whether they're, uh, you know, male or female, becomes aware of it probably in early adolescence. And you don't, I think that most children, because that's what, they are, and I include myself, you don't know quite what to do with it. You know, what What does this mean? What does... And it's also something a little embarrassing about it, you know, because it sets you apart. And, and, and at that age, too, you just want to be like everyone else. Later, I, I, of course I knew that I was pretty. I just, I don't think... What I think is that I tried very hard not to know too much about it. And as a way of, 
out of shyness and out of self-consciousness, and I think too out of a fear that it somehow would corrupt me. Were you, I mean, a lot of the book you say, find yourself saying, you know, you know, I was waiting for life to begin and wondering, you know, who was I? What, I mean, you know, this is even while you seem to be in the middle of the absolute, you know, Hollywood intellectual high society. Did you still have that feeling? I mean, was there a, you know, life was by most external standards happening to you? When, at what point did you think, you know, actually, this is it, this is life? It took a long time, you know, and, it, and then when all that was happening around me, I was still waiting for my life to begin. I, I don't know, quite know what I thought would precipitate it or what, what the sign would be of it. I do think that that came from the trauma of childhood, too, when I learned that you could not, you could not count on anything and that nothing was stable or permanent. You know, if your mother dies suddenly one night when you're 12. I, and, and even now, it's very hard for me to think or anticipate or to plot too far ahead because I have no faith in the future. Did you see yourself as turning into a writer? I mean, you, the, the, the book has the beginnings of your, your starting to write and starting to think of that as a way of being in the world. I mean, did that sort of, was that in the background all along or did, I mean, I'm wondering how much your friendship with Joan Didion, for instance, helped to encourage you or, or, or otherwise? I always, always was writing as a child, writing plays, writing extremely bad poetry, little stories, and all through school. And, 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 and in a way, I was writing when I was doing script reading, even though it was of a very particular, formalized kind of writing. I wanted really to be a journalist. I thought I thought that was, you know, and also was that period when journalists were beginning to be, with the start of Vietnam, journalists were had a much different position than they do now, I think, and had more glamour. And is this a sort of new journalism period? Yes, and when I went for that ludicrous interview or that. I was ludicrous. The interview wasn't ludicrous with Walter Annenberg, who was the who owned the Philadelphia Inquirer, and I was sent there through a friend. Again, the woman who who sent me the clothes. I I walked into his office, seventeen years old, and said to him that I would like to be a reporter, thinking that that actually <laughs> had some weight or some you know that that it, I hadn't been educated to be it anyway. So I did always want to write, and it was more John Gregory Dunn, who was Joan's husband, who very strongly in, would encourage me to write often and, and, and really nagged me about it and to write anything, just write anything. And I tried, and I, I, he helped me. I didn't think it was very good, and I, I think really I wasn't ready. And I still was working. But the minute, you know, quite soon after the end of the, this, this period of, of which I write, I was living in London for a number of years, and I was living with a man who made it possible for me not to work, and that's when I wrote my first book, when I didn't have to worry about earning my living. 
you know, one of the things you describe is that you know you're you're amid this great sort of Hollywood decadence, and there's you know drinking all the time, there's everybody sleeping with everybody else, seemingly there's drugs all over the place, and yet you say you know you were very down on the hippies, you didn't take drugs, you were you know what you sort of set yourself against that a little bit. Was that an instinct of self-protectiveness or prudishness or what? No, I think the not taking drugs was simply that I felt so fragile and felt that I had such a transitory, delicate hold on reality and that my depression, I recognized that I was depressed and in grief and that I, I just was afraid. And also I didn't like it. I remember I, 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 I didn't like it, the feeling, physical feeling of it. The few times I tried cocaine and I mean the last thing I needed was for my 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 brain to be more active. You know, I was what I what I liked was quaaludes and and downers. I liked things that made me calm, alcohol that calmed me rather than the opposite. Yeah. And was there a point was it as a writer or in later romantic relationships or in later employment that you kind of finally, as it were, found yourself feeling at home in the world? That's such a good question. I think that I always, I always knew who I, I always knew that there was someone there. As I write uh, in the book, that she had disguised herself, hidden herself, and I wasn't able to find her. I, I think I knew very clearly in childhood who I was which is interesting, I mean, odd that one would know as a child. I think it took me a long time, you know, years of analysis. The writing of the books helped, of course. I mean, I, I became a writer, and I think it took time. I, I think the trauma of my mother's death really had me captive uh, in, in, in grief for a long, long time. Even now. You have a succession of mother figures in the book, don't you? Yes, and, and later in life there, there were more figures like that, but some of them men uh, and not, not lovers. One, a, a gay man, and, and another, a, a much older man. So I, I, there is certainly, I mean, helping, writing the book helped me to see that too, not that I was unaware of it. But that there was always a, there was always an older person who I saw either as a mother or a father, even my second husband, and 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 needed to have a sense of well-being. I was very fortunate to find them, because I'm not sure I I would have been all right without them. I, I, no, I wouldn't have been. I would not have been. I wouldn't have been able to get through without them. How, your own father, you seem to be... I mean, I'm, I'm wondering how you feel about him now. You say there's a killer line in the book where you say, you know, you learnt cribbage, chess and betrayal from him. <laughs> yeah. My father remains a great mystery to friends of mine, to people who read the book, and certainly to myself and to my brothers and sisters, because 
no, even given the, the, the horrendous behavior of my sadistic stepmother, he was there. He did nothing to stop it. He was, he was in some ways more responsible and more guilty than she was. So it took me a long time to be able to have a, any kind of conversation with him. And there were years and years when I did not speak to him or see him. But toward the end of his life, and as I grew older, I, I thought, you know, I really, I, I need this anger, which is a kind of energy, of course. I need it for other things, this, this energy, and I have, to, I have to figure this out. And so I did get in touch with him, and, and we became uh, friends in the last probably decade of his life. Uh, none of this... None of what happened was ever really discussed. It, I don't think it could have been. I did apologize to him uh, for any pain I might have caused him in the writing of my first book, My Old Sweetheart, which is very, very autobiographical. And uh, he did say, uh, you could never ever cause me the amount of pain I caused you and your brothers and sisters which was a was very shocking to me because it was an acknowledgement that he had never made before. I, I was unaware that he even felt that way. Can I ask your... Um, I'm wondering how much to you the, the events of this book feel like a sort of period piece in line with, you know, in an age when we've moved on enormously in terms, or we hope we've moved on enormously in terms of you know, sexual relationships, sexual power, the place of miso- institutionalised misogyny. I mean, do you feel like this story wouldn't have been possible, wouldn't have happened in the same way had you been born 40 years later? No, I think it would not have been possible. And, you know, one thing that I, I've noticed in reading some of the interviews I've done, I've made a mistake in that I, when talking about the, the assumption of blame in regard to Ola Cassini and that, the the rape when I say that I still feel guilty it's not I, I miss I'm it's not true I misspoke I I don't any longer blame myself that ended maybe 20 years ago 10 years ago and certainly now I don't blame myself I I, I blame him I blame myself then and for a long time thereafter but that is a way in which it has changed, and I have changed. No, of course I don't blame myself now. But that took a while for me to achieve that, that understanding and that, that refusal to employ the, the traditional female masochism and, and lack of self-worth, lack of worth. You said, I mean, that seems to also carry over into the, into the in being received as a woman writer. I mean, you've said, you know, that when you wrote in the cut, you were consciously trying to say, let's, you know, show that I can do something that's traditionally a male domain. I mean, did that, you know, were you surprised by the reaction to that? Were you surprised by the way the book took off and how people responded to it? Which book? In the cut or this book? In the cut, which there was, you know, where you said that was a conscious break from saying, I don't want to be seen as a female writer writing about women's... Well, you know, at the time when it was written, it, it was not seen, was not read with the kind of understanding and uh, appreciation that 
happened recently in England when it was republished. And that was surprising and very gratifying because suddenly people were reading it and understanding it in the way that I intended. When I and when it was written, I, I received very many distressing letters from people who wrote, oh, <clears throat> it was really sexy to read about a, a girl who, who's trying to get killed, which horrified me because it was not what I intended. That reaction has not occurred in this last year in, in, when it was republished in England. That people, uh, people saw it for saw it in its complexity, which made me very, very happy. Uh, I mean, it does have, you know, it's probably the only book I can think of that has a sort of mixture of sexual violence and, you know, academic interest in linguistics. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was deliberate too. You know, I thought, well, first of all, I am very interested in all of that. And I have this long list that I keep and which gives me great pleasure of, I guess you can only call it misusage uh, of language and how language has changed. It is, you know, people now say tender hooks, which has a kind of <laughs> logic as opposed to tenter hooks. No one knows what a tenter hook is. So all of that interests me. And I thought when I was writing in the cut, I can't just make it about a woman who is trying to find her way between her own wants and needs and what is expected of her by men or and needed from her by men. So I, I decided to put in something that interested me and that I was writing about in journals of my own, which was language. Were you under great pressure to, as it were, repeat the performance? I mean, did they say, oh, we, you're now going to be the erotic noir lady? No, there was some, yes, there was some... My editor, Sonny, kept teasing me always, and, and although it was a half of a tease, he would say, can't you write another thriller? Can't you make it something sexy? You know, <laughs> do you have to be so serious? And I felt that I, I, I did not want to repeat. I had, I had said what I wanted to say in, in, in the cut. The other thing was that, you know, I have spent a lot of time in my life as a volunteer, and part of that uh, work was done in prisons. I used to teach in prison, men's prisons and women's prisons, and I was very aware of what men did to women, and and then, of course, if you look at the statistics, this, they are shocking in regard to male violence, and and... Oh, so it was on my mind. It wasn't just some arbitrary, oh, I think I'll, I'll, write, about, I'll write about that. It was something I was thinking about all the time, as I said, in part because of my work in prisons. It seems quite a timely book in the, the sense of, you know, it's interested in male violence and police violence. I mean, how, what's, your, what's your response to what's going on now in the States, you know, as we record this? There's, I'm both exhilarated by it and worried about it. I have a feeling of dread that it's something that is that will not result in permanent 
deep change. I think the police are very, very violent. I think there's tremendous racism in this country. I, I think that it's to undo it all is going to take an enormous, I, you know, I, I, I'm not even sure it's possible fully effort on the part of everybody. I mean, racism is very, in, in this country, ingrained and acceptable, acceptable. And, you know, it, you want, we have to begin, we have to try to change it, but it's just an, it's just an overwhelming task. I mean, look at, we have Trump and his followers. You know, this tells us a lot, tells one a lot about what people think. I don't know how you, how you, education, I don't, but I don't know quite how you undo that. But, but I, 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 we're going to try. Another kind of contemporary resonance that struck me reading Miss Aluminum is you, you describe, and he's an immensely attractive character in this book, Roman Polanski, as a young man. But obviously he's now very much, you know, he's been cancelled, so to speak. I mean, were you kind of conscious of that? Did that make it difficult to write the young Polanski from the point of view then? Well, you know, I, I, you know his... in some ways I was relieved that the period that I knew him was before he raped the the child, the girl, in Jack's house. And and so I didn't, it was probably cowardly of me, but I, I didn't have to deal with that because that had not yet happened. It was clear that he was interested in young women, although I never saw him with any young girls or knew about incidents, but he didn't disguise that. And it was not even particularly frowned upon. Even now I am surprised and infuriated even when, when friends of mine, people who should know better, say, oh, well, you can't really fault him for what happened because things were different then. I've, 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 you know, this is a common reaction among, among people about the rape of the girl, and I, I just don't think it's good enough. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a, you know, it's, rape is rape. It's not, it's not that things were different. I think what was different was there was an acceptance. It was the 70s. There was a kind of hipster, cool, you know, self-determination, individual. You know, it, was, it was different in that way. And flower power and free love. But morally, it was not different. And, and that's just an excuse, I think, that people use now, which I dislike. You said you, you, you're not going to kind of do, as it were, a sequel to this book. Do you feel like you've mined your life enough? I mean, do you feel you've answered the questions you wanted to ask? Or is there going to be another volume from another period in your life? Oh, God. You know, when uh, a while ago I, I thought, I just cannot write about my childhood anymore. I've written about it so much and thought about it so much. And surely it's as tiresome to other people as it has become to me. And as I said earlier, when I was writing the memoir, I realized I had to include certain things, otherwise my behavior was incomprehensible. So if I were to write a sequel, you know, I, you can't, when you do that, assume that everyone will have read the, the, the first book 
And so again, I would have to include certain, you know, psychological background, I guess you'd call it. And, and I don't want to do it. I just don't want to write about it anymore. I don't even when I'm reading, I'm very fond of, of books now. And it's a, it's a trend. It's a modern usage of, of plot that in many books that I read, uh, the, the past has, is left out entirely. And certainly it was in, in, in the books I read as a girl, in, you know, in, in Thomas Hardy or Dickens, you don't get an awful lot. You don't get anything about the, the childhood of the characters. And, and, it's, and it's just fine that you don't. I think that's us done. Susanna Moore, thank you very much indeed for your time. It's been a pleasure speaking oh, to you. Oh, you are such a good interviewer. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it. If you hated it, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening and please join us for our next episode. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.